Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box podcast with me, Matt Chorley, and I've just done my first show on Times Radio. And amazingly, I think they're going to let us uh, do it again tomorrow. There was absolutely loads in the three hours from 10 till 1, but we thought on the podcast we'd bring you a conversation that I had with George Osborne and Alistair Darling about what it's like to be in the Treasury when it all goes wrong and what the Chancellor should do now to try and balance the books, if indeed we need to. If you want to listen to the whole show, you can head to the Times Radio app or times.radio online to listen back to the show. Uh, And do tell your friends and tune in and listen to the show for the rest of the week, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. For now, this is the conversation with George Osborne and Alistair Darling. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. done it before. But first of all, how big is a trillion? It's a mind-bogglingly large figure to imagine. In fact, two trillion is what we're talking about. Two trillion is two followed by 12 zeros. Uh, to give you some idea of what two trillion looks like, a thousand seconds, now this is testing my math, but I think this is right, a thousand seconds is about two and a half minutes. A million seconds is about 11 and a half days. A billion seconds is about 30 years. And a trillion, a trillion seconds is almost 32,000 years. So two trillion seconds is 64,000 years. Remember, a million seconds, 
11 and a half days. So two trillion pounds is what we're talking about. That is the size of the national debt. Two trillion pounds and growing. And as the billions of pounds spent trying to shore up the economy in the uh, uh, as a result of the coronavirus outbreak, uh, they all keep adding to what the country eventually owes. Now, before the financial crisis hit in 2007, national debt, the amount, the total amount the country owed, was around 40% of the total size of the economy. It is now 100%. The total amount of money that the government, that the nation owes is the same size as the entire economy. But does it matter? And if it does... How should we try to balance the books? Joining me now are two people who have had to think about doing just that. Alistair Darling became Chancellor of the Exchequer in May 2007, months before the banking crisis hit and the government government borrowing soared as a result. At the 2010 election, he set out a plan to halve the deficit. After that election, of course, after the formation of the coalition, George Osborne replaced him in the Treasury in 2010, promising to eradicate the deficit altogether in five years. And after five years of austerity he'd only managed to halve it. Now history is repeating itself, of course. The coronavirus lockdown meant many businesses stopped trading, slashing the amount of tax the Treasury received. And at the same time, Rishi Sunak, the new Chancellor, has spent billions on schemes to help businesses and workers stay afloat. So I'm delighted to be joined by Alistair Darling and George Osborne on the line. Let's start with you, uh, Alistair. Just take us back to 2007. What is it like being in the Treasury when when all the dashboards start flashing red and the alarms are going off and, and everything is in crisis mode? Well, you just have to deal with it, really. I suppose the most alarming thing I had to deal with uh, was um, in October 2008 when I was phoned by the then chairman of RBS, which is then the biggest bank in the world. And the bank that the, the RBS at that time was about the same size as the British economy. Uh, and, you know, there had been a terrible run on the bank that morning. I asked him how long he could last, and he said, well, maybe two or three hours. Wow. And you think about it, the cash machines would have gone off, the doors would have closed, and what's more, people would have lost faith, I suspect, in every other bank, not just in Britain, but elsewhere. You know, we were literally within hours of the whole thing crashing down. Having said that, this situation today is worse than the one that I faced 10 years ago, um, shoring up and restoring the banking system uh, was difficult, but it was doable. Uh, and, you know, from day one, we were about getting the economy going again. Today, rightly, the government has shut down a lot of the economy as part of the lockdown to contain this virus. And that's, you know, that's only we're only very slowly emerging from that. Uh, and, of course, you know, we now have the prospect of possibly 1980s style uh, size of uh, unemployment. We don't know how long it's going to take for the economy to recover. That's why you're talking about the sums that you were discussing just a few moments ago. It's it, dealable with. It's not new territory. We've had very large sums of debt before, like after the Second World War, but it will be difficult. And is there a point when you're in the Treasury when the numbers just become so... Ma- I mean, there was a point sort of pre-financial crisis where political stories could get on the front page if they involved millions, and suddenly the numbers start sort of ballooning becoming billions and billions and billions. As, as Chancellor, do you become sort of slightly desensitised to those huge sums? No, you don't really, uh, because, you know, you're aware of the fact that, um, you, you know, as your, as your economy slows down, your tax revenues drop, but you can't let spending drop, otherwise the situation gets much, much worse. 
but you know, of course, it's very much in your mind. And I suppose, you know, if you're looking back ten years ago, uh, then you know, we were being uh, that would have been criticised all over the place by the fact that we were allowing debt to increase. My argument then was, you've got to because the alternative is to crash the economy. Exactly the same argument now. The difference is today because everybody else in the world is more or less the same position. You know, people are sort of you know taking it more in their stride. Still, at the end of the day, all these things have to be paid for. But my priority today, if I was in the Treasury, uh, would be how do you how do you get the country going again? And critically, how do you avoid very large numbers of people, maybe three million people, ending up in the dole queues, which is what happened in the 1980s? It's that it would be my number one priority. Uh, you know, I, yes, we've got high levels of debt, but people need to understand if you if you start cutting back on the economy now, the numbers will get much much worse. This is a classic case where only the government is big enough to make sure you've got the investment, the public spending to get the economy through this. You talked about your scariest moment in the Treasury being when you, you, got, the, you got that call about the banks. Um, do you think Richie Sunak has had his scariest moment yet? No, I don't think he has. Uh, you know, hard though the last three months have been in trying to contain this virus. And, you know, we're not out of it yet, as you can see. Um, the biggest challenge will be, what do you do this autumn? If he allows the the job retention schemes, uh, you know, the, the, the payments of self-employed people to, you know, fall off a cliff edge, if you like, this autumn, uh, then, you know, the politics will change. You know, if you're the Chancellor Exchequer and you're handing out money, you know, people like you. Uh, but an awful lot of time, the Chancellor Exchequer has to say, well, no, we can't be doing that. So I think the most difficult thing that he's got to do is how do you bridge between we are, where we are now uh, to a stage where the economy is starting to grow again? And, you know, I think the whole government should be, you know, frightened about that. Frankly, announcing 10 years' worth of spending is all very well, but 10 years' worth of spending is, you know, it's, there's two things there. It's dead easy to announce these things. Uh, what's necessary is delivery of these things and delivery in the next few months, not the next few years. Let's bring George Osborne in now. You arrived in the Treasury in 2010. Uh, how scary was it? I mean, having spent five years as uh, Shadow Chancellor, you obviously knew what you wanted to do, but the, the financial black hole uh, made, made that difficult. How scary was it the first, your first day when you arrived in the Treasury? Well, I, I don't think it was scary so much as uh, daunting. Um, I mean, I, ha- I was not Chancellor in the middle of the banking crisis in the way that Alistair was. So I didn't really have the same situation of banks falling down around me. But I, but I was in a situation where we had no majority. We were putting together a coalition for the first time, really, in Britain's uh, post-war history. And we had international markets looking at the UK saying, well, you know, can Britain pay its way in the world? And, and over the sort of first few months of my time as Chancellor, first of all, there were a lot of questions about whether the coalition would survive. We, we forget now, but, it, you know, of course, it did last five years. But at the time, people thought it might fall apart. And and quite a lot of our neighbours, like Ireland and then on the continent, Portugal and Greece, which had already had started to have problems earlier, Spain, you know, a lot of big economies started to have essentially funding crises where the world would not lend them money to pay for their public services. Uh, And and so in the UK, there was always a sense, you know, perhaps – after the banking crisis, we're going to get a fiscal crisis. We're going to get a situation where the world is not going to pay our debt uh, or, or lend us money. And and that was, you know, very much uppermost in mind because we had to instill in the, in the world a confidence that the UK had a plan, that the UK government was stable, uh, that whilst we were not going to 
balance the books overnight, that was our medium-term ambition. That was where we were trying to take the country. And I think actually by leveling with the country before the election, which was quite a risky thing to do for an opposition, to say, look, there are hard choices coming and we're going to have to cut back on certain things. I think, you know, I actually think we commanded a lot of public support. We didn't have the problem that some other governments in the world had that, you know, they had essentially lied to their publics. And of course, you know, ultimately, five years later, uh, we got re-elected. So people stuck with us. So obviously, you embarked on what at the time was called austerity. But um, according to the Prime Minister this morning, maybe it wasn't austerity at all. Just take a listen to what you said this morning on uh, Times Radio Breakfast. It's, in the end, what you can't do, I think, at this moment, is go back to what people called austerity. I mean, it wasn't actually austerity, but people called it austerity. So there we are, George. It wasn't austerity at, at all. You got booed at the Olympics, but it turned out it wasn't happening. <laughs> well, I think, um, by the way, you know, a chancellor that's never unpopular is not a chancellor doing their job. But look, I think the, um, uh, I, th- I think you have to understand that back 10 years ago, because it's relevant to now, something happened to Britain and indeed to other countries as well, which is we got poorer than we otherwise would have been. Our banking system collapsed, our economy shrunk. And that ultimately leads to choices as to what you can afford as a country. I mean, you can borrow in the short term. And indeed, countries have, you know, credibility like Britain in the borrowing markets precisely for moments of emergency like this. Uh, So I'm all for trying to borrow away through this immediate crisis. But then you face the reality, which is the country's economy is smaller than we thought it was going to be. Indeed, it has shrunk sharply. And some of that will come back. Some of that will bounce back. Some of it never will uh, and will be sort of permanently lost. And you then have to make a decision, which is, how are you going to cut the cloth? Are you going to, if you want to pay for more public services, fine, but then you have to ask people for more taxes. Or if you don't want to raise taxes on people, then you can't afford the, the more public services. I mean, that ultimately is the choice. And yes, in the kind of day-to-day of politics and, and, and in the questions about how much you can borrow, you can sort of essentially delay some of those decisions. But, but they basically are the bread and butter of politics. But how do you how feel? Much you, how much you tax and how much you spend. And, and the country, very sadly, is poorer than we thought it was going to be because of this virus. George, how do you feel now that uh, you did all that, you, know, you took those unpopular decisions... Uh, to try and balance the books. It obviously took much longer than you'd originally set out. And now senior members of the Conservative Party seem to be saying, oh, no, it either didn't happen or we shouldn't have done it and we don't need a return to that. How do you feel about that, them sort of distancing themselves from what you did? Well, no, I don't... Fun if I don't particularly feel like that. I think, as it happens, most of the big changes in our country in the last 10 years were, were undertaken by the government that I was part of under David Cameron and... You know, all the things that they laud at the moment, like school reform and, uh, you know, until very recently getting people into work were, were due to the actions of that government. So did, did Boris uh, Johnson and, and, and as, ever as lobby you against... Austerity is a consequence. It's not, you know, the, it's not a deliberate act of policy. It's a consequence of an economic crash. Uh, and here, I mean, I'm a bit more optimistic than Alistair. I don't think it is necessarily as bad as the banking crash. And I think there's a prospect that we can recover much more quickly than we did from a wide, you know, very um, endemic problem in our credit system. Um, but I definitely think we're going to be faced with some harder choices down the down the road about, you know, how we recover. And ultimately, and, government's got to lead. 
And Boris Johnson obviously now doesn't even want to use the word austerity. When you were making all of those decisions, he was Labour. Uh, he was not Labour. He was Mayor of London. Did he did he lobby you against it now, or do you think he's a late convert to the uh, to the cause of opposing austerity? No, I, you know, to be honest, Boris Johnson and I work very well together. I, I see him regularly, and we would work out the London budget. And where I, you know, where I mean, I, you know, I got. In the end, people, uh, you know, laugh that I put on that high-vis jacket a lot. And I now notice that's like, uh, you know, the uniform of the current government. It's because <laughs> I was seeking to convey a real thing, which was we were looking for ways we could permanently boost the uh, capacity of the economy, make Britain a go-to place for investment. Uh, and that it did involve spending money, including with Boris Johnson on things like new tube lines and new developments in the Olympic Park and so on. And, you know, the, the result of making of the credible plan to deal with the debt alongside making Britain very attractive to business investment and putting money into infrastructure was that Britain had a quicker recovery from the financial crash than any other G7 country. And more jobs were created under that government I was part of than any other British government in history. And Alistair is completely right. There's a potential jobs crisis here. So, it's, it's, you know, government's got to create the conditions in which businesses can create the jobs. It can't think that it can create the jobs alone. OK, well, let's look now then at what might happen next, if you like. This YouGov poll for Times Radio does seem to show a big shift in public attitudes. 47% now back Tax rises up from 30% in 2009. Support for dealing with the deficit uh, through spending cuts has almost halved uh, to uh, just 27%. Um, Alistair, do you think that the, that the, is the public move to the left? Is it just that we don't want to go through austerity again? Is, has there been a big shift, do you think, in the attitudes to public tax and spend? Well, I'd be cautious about it, actually. Um, you know, people's enthusiasm for paying taxes tends to fade if they think they're going to be paying them. Um, and <laughs> equally, uh, you know, the, I've said before, the only truly popular tax is one that somebody else is paying. Um, I, I think, though, the public is not in the mood, either economically or politically, to go back to you know, what is referred to generally as austerity. Now, austerity, you know, it, it wasn't just an economic concept. It was you know, a political phenomenon, if you like. Uh, but what basically people are wanting is hope. You know, they're hoping that, you know, that thing, we can get through this and that things can get better. But as George has said, you know, the economy's taken quite a big hit. And one point I'd make in relation to the job creation of the last 10 years, an awful lot of jobs were created in the hospitality and retail sector. Now, that's the one sector of the, of the two sectors of the economy uh, that, you know, where there's big question marks as to whether or not we can get back to, to where we were. So we, I think we need to be cautious about that. And on the and subject of tax... on the side of caution here... Uh, and be prepared for that. And if it's, things are better than we thought, well, it's good and well. But well, I think as far as the public reaction is concerned, the, the public mood, I think, is for the government to do what's necessary, I guess, along with the private sector, but to do what's necessary to get through this. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, yeah, our economy is going to be smaller. Uh, nobody's mentioned the dreaded Brexit word, but I'm afraid that's coming along too. All in, most independent forecasters say that's going to cause another hit to the economy, depending whether we get a deal or not. You know, so, so there's an awful lot to negotiate our way through. But I, I'm always cautious of opinion polls, and this one's no exception, really. On the, just on the subject of tax, obviously, when you were Chancellor Alistair, you cut VAT from 17.5% to 15% in 2008. George, you put it back up to 20%. There's talk of a, of a rate cut now, possibly, to sort of stimulate the economy. Where do you both stand on that? Should, what, what should be the, the correct level of VAT? Stop with you first, Alistair, just quickly, and then we'll take George. Well, remember, what, what I did was a temporary cut. 
in which to boost spending. Uh, you know, I've, I've said before that you know I still think the Chancellor Chancellor's got to consider that. Obviously, the timing is important because if people can't actually or won't go into shops, uh, then the effect would be you know less um, marked than than perhaps otherwise. But I think what you're looking at are various measures. You shouldn't just look at this. This isn't this isn't a single thing that would sort everything out. Uh, you know, we, when we did it, we did the strategy scheme for car, for old cars. We did um, you know, the time to pay for tax and so on, which you know, the government has done again today. What I prefer the government to be doing is to look at projects that are you can get underway quickly. Um, you know, I, I, there was a report out last week by the, you know, the policy exchange which suggested that an awful lot of these decisions could be taken at a, a regional level for the smaller you know, type projects. Shovel, shovel ready is the word we keep using, of course. Um, George, what, do you, what level do you, what do you think should happen to VAT, or is it is it not a big issue for you? I think, it's, to be honest, I think cutting VAT is a, a waste of money for the government. Um, I mean, I don't feel particularly strongly about it. If they want to do it, fine. But it's not going to, you know, our problem is not that things are too expensive in the shops, right? You go to the shops, those that are open, they're heavily discounting at the moment. Uh, that's not the issue. And the truth is, people aren't stupid. They know that VAT is going up in the future. They know that taxes are going to rise in the future. You know, Alistair, it was a temporary tax cut, but we all knew, not least that because some Treasury documents leaked at the time, that the Labour government was planning to increase VAT <laughs> in the future. And of course, when I came in as part of the coalition, I increased VAT. So people are, you know, they know that the country's poorer, that many families are poorer. They're saving money. They're worried about their jobs. They're not. It's what's sort of holding people back is not the level of VAT. And and I personally, if I was chancellor, if I had that money available, and it's pretty expensive to cut VAT, I would use that money as a sort of one-off sum of money because it's temporary to to do the things that we need to do on our infrastructure and our roads and all of that. Uh, and and get least, going at least then you have something that, concrete. You know, at least have some it. prospect of being built in the next couple of years. Nothing is shovel ready in this country, but uh, <laughs> but at least you know you, there are things you can do: repairs to roads, repairs to school buildings, and the like. The government's talking about at the moment. For my money, it's a better use of that cash. Um, I'd like to talk about relations between Number Ten and Number Eleven. There's been a lot of stuff over the past couple of days about. Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak barbecuing together, playing table football and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but if you look at the messages, there, there is a difference, it seems. The Chancellor seems to want a short, sharp stimulus, followed by possibly more difficult decisions in the autumn, where the PM just wants to, no austerity, let's get spending. How important is the relationship between uh, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor? Uh, let's start with you, Alice. It's fair to say your relationship with Number 10 wasn't always great. The, the, you had the forces of hell unleashed on you. How important is that relationship? Well, it's very important uh, because arguably it's uh, two of the most important jobs in any government. Uh, so, so you you, you do uh, need to have a good working relationship and you know a shared um, purpose and destiny, if you like. Uh, but did you, you know, did you feel you had a shared purpose and destiny with Gordon Brown? That relationship hasn't worked out. I think. Did Did you feel you had a shared purpose and destiny when you were working for Gordon Brown? Yeah, for, 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 for the most part, we did. You know, we, we, we um, you know, in, in dealing with the financial crisis and its fallout. Uh, but you know, I, I think you know, all all government relationships, uh, you know, matter. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it appears from the stuff you're getting today, you know, um, Johnson is ever the optimist. Whether or not it's grounded in reality, we don't know. 
uh, and naturally the Chancellor has got to think about, yes, how do we get the economy through the, the, the difficult times just now? But then you know, at some stage you need to set out a plan, even though it, you know, my guess is it will take a long time several years before um, you know, we, we get through this uh, and all the economic fallout from it. Uh, what about you, George? Downing Street sources tell us uh, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak are seeking to model themselves on Cameron and Osborne um, because you got on so well. Was there ever a time when, when one of you wanted to cut or tax something and the other one strongly opposed it? Uh, yeah, no, there was a regular, very healthy dialogue. And actually, the, you know, the job of the Chancellor is very different from the job of the Prime Minister. And it's a mistake of a Chancellor to think that they're the Prime Minister. And it's a mistake of a Prime Minister not to uh, want good, challenging advice from their Chancellor. Um, but no, there were definitely moments when we, what, what, we had disagreements. What did you have the biggest row about? I don't think we never had a row. I don't think it was a row <laughs> as such. Uh, I wasn't very keen on having a European referendum, but <laughs> that's probably the subject of another uh, interview. Um, I, look, in the end, you know, uh, we had a particular friendship and, and a closeness born of trust and a born of the fact that we did, you know, I wasn't sort of bitter or jealous that, you know, I wasn't the prime minister. And he also, you know, had huge respect and, and uh, was prepared to, you know, give me the time of day. Um, and, you know, this whole, this year started with number 10, essentially pushing out a chancellor, Sajid Javid, who, by the way, a couple of months ago, uh, had been saying was going to be just like kind of Osborne and Cameron, <laughs> um, because they didn't want a sort of rival treasury base. You know, I mean, that, to me, is a sort of paranoid Downing Street. Now, hopefully, they've seen over the last couple of months the value, not just that a chancellor, but by the way, the treasury officials can bring to government. Because most of the impressive schemes that the government has unveiled, like the furlough scheme that stops people being immediately unemployed, has been treasury designed, treasury delivered, and and has you know worked very well. So well, I would say kind of trust that, you know, the... The secret prime ministers should go out the front door, look at number 10 and see that they are the first lord of the treasury. And that should mean they shouldn't be suspicious of the treasury. They should have the confidence of getting the treasury work for them, including the civil servants in the treasury, which is a topic of today. And and then there's no, you know, then that's what, that's what powers Downing, number 10 Downing Street. That's what supercharges number 10 Downing Street. Whereas prime ministers who go to war with their treasuries or their chancellors end up being powerless. Um, just because obviously you spent quite a lot of time um, looking into departmental spending. We're told again that departments were told to find some more cuts. Is there any fat left to cut, do you think? Where, where do you think they could find some savings if they really wanted to? Well, I think, look, like anything... Uh, you've got to constantly make sure you're spending the money efficiently and, you know, you haven't got a bunch of programs that were, um, you know, launched by previous prime ministers or previous administrations, you know, are now, you know, not proving very effective or indeed things are not by your own administration. But no, you could, you could look around and I'm sure there are, there are, uh, Whitehall schemes and initiatives that just aren't really working. I mean, some where I actually think, Michael Gove gave an interesting speech about this this weekend, where I think, you know, he's right, is there's not enough kind of contestability in politics. We don't we don't challenge uh, things that frankly aren't working terribly well and the results aren't there to justify their continued existence. There's, there's too much, you know, people are very risk averse. And actually, if anything, in this situation, not just because of coronavirus, but because of Britain's standing in the world, 
uh, as a result of everything that's happened in the last couple of years. You know, we actually need to take some risks to make Britain the kind of enterprise capital, the go-to place for business and investment. And that involves rolling the dice a bit. Um, I suppose I should ask you, you're now no longer editor of the Evening Standard is your day job. I've got, well, I've, uh, You've got I've lots got of other jobs, as we know. I've got to review the uh, Times Radio. Oh well, oh well, I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll commend between eleven and eleven thirty highly. Uh, but what, what's what's on the agenda for you now? A seat in the Lords and a cabinet job? Would you, in, in a word, <laughs> if Boris Johnson called you up, would you take a job? I know, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing. I'm in, enjoying life. You know, very good. Turns out, uh, turns out that you know, being in the cabinet is not the only route to happiness. Um, that's George Osborne there. Just finally, Alistair Darley, obviously you funded the uh, the Scottish independent the campaign against Scottish independence. Do you think? What's been playing out, whether it's Boris Johnson in London and coronavirus and the economic hit, does that make Scottish independence more or less likely, do you think? No, you know, obviously, you know, Nicola Sturgeon against Boris Johnson, for her, that was a low bar. Uh, and, you know, but if, if you look at the policies that have been pursued north and south of the border, they're not actually that dissimilar. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the arguments about Scottish independence haven't actually changed that much in the last um uh, six years since since the referendum, uh, but uh, I think the, most people in Scotland would like to get through this and you know get our economy growing again. We're as badly affected here as we are in the rest of the UK. Um, and just finally, is Keir Starmer the man to win back all those seats in Scotland that there used to be when you were an MP there, and uh, distinctly lacking now? Uh, yes, I think he's made. It, I think he's made a very good start, and you know people do say to me, you know, at least now we've got a credible opposition, and more than that. You know, an opposition that looks like it could be a government. It's a completely different situation to the one we've had put up with for the last uh, few years. Uh, and, uh, you know, people do want change. Uh, you know, this, we, we know that. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, 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 if, he can, if he can articulate that, put it forward, there's no reason why we, we can't recover our position and do well. And I say he's made a very good start. Just finally, then, we've been talking about slogans all day. George, you're obviously particularly renowned for your uh, you know, long-term economic plan and all that. Boris has got build, build, build. Keir Starmer has got jobs, jobs, jobs. What would your, your personal three-word slogan be um, this morning? Uh, start with you, George. Fix what's wrong. Very good. And Alistair? Oh, I'd better agree with Keir Starmer, even though I have no intention of returning to politics. Oh, well, there we are. But it's nice to have you back anyway. It's nice to, 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 have that, to draw on your experience and you can speak more freely. That's uh, George Osborne and Alistair Darling, two former chancellors. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And listen to my show on Times Radio, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. And to read more about what we've been discussing, you can subscribe at thetimes.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.